And this morning when we start this series on, the, series on the book of Exodus, we are digging into really the foundational books of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament are known as the Pentateuch, stands for five, and they really do provide the, the theological foundation for all that we learn about God in the Bible. So they provide the foundation of God, the world, humanity, sin, and salvation. They are hugely foundational to the rest of the Old Testament, and they set the stage for the New Testament. And those, those books are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some of them get a bad rap. And so hopefully, even just as we, we jump into the book of Exodus, you'll begin to see some of the connections and why they are so important and foundational. And we're going to start kind of at block two in the foundation, which is the book of Exodus. And Exodus gets its name because one of the main storylines in the Old Testament, and really that the New Testament authors pick up on, is that of the Exodus. God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, and them leaving Egypt and heading towards the promised land. See, God establishes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai after he rescues them. So we're going to jump into the book of Exodus this morning, but we're going to stay like if we're in an airplane, we're going to stay at about 30,000 feet today. So we're going to look at the whole landscape of Exodus, and then next week we're going to jump into the details of chapter 1 and then kind of work our way through uh, if you're hoping for great detail, we're doing this as a survey. Exodus is a big book, so we're going we're gonna to go in order, but we're going to take chunks of chapters. So we're not going to maybe dive as deep as some of you would hope, and we're going to dive deeper than some of you would like. <laughs> so uh, we're trying to hit a, hit a middle there. But the idea of Exodus, it's this epic journey from slavery to salvation, from misery and oppression to, to freedom. And we're going to see that that has relevant application for us. Uh, this past Friday, I guess it would be two days ago, I was at a parent meeting for um, my son Adam and daughter Lily's track, uh, annual track meeting with the coaches, and they prepare the parents, and they, they, they just set out big expectations for what they hope the athletes will accomplish, and they tell things that we need to know. Well, I want to do that the form of what the coach did on Friday with the book of Exodus. There's some certain things that, that we want to accomplish as we go through the book of Exodus. And, and these are, let's say, modest goals that my prayer and our prayers, pastors, for all of you is these things would happen as we go through the book of Exodus. Number one, that you would get some basic tools to better understand and appreciate the Old Testament. So even beyond the book of Exodus. Some of you really appreciate it. Some of you get really confused by it. We're hoping that for everyone, there's just some more tools in your toolbox that you, you understand it a little bit better. Number two, modest goal. We hope that we can help you see God's holiness and his character that's on full display in the book of Exodus. Number three, this is a really important one. And this will help you understand all of the Old Testament and really all of the Bible. That we would help you to see that the hero of the Old Testament, the hero of the Exodus story, is God himself. 
The hero isn't the person that God raises up. The, the hero is God himself. We, we hope that you, you see that the groundwork for the good news of Jesus is actually laid out in great detail in the book of Exodus, specifically the Passover. Next goal. We hope that you see how relevant the book of Exodus is for your Christian life. So this is, this is going to be a lot more than a history lesson if we do our job well and the Holy Spirit helps us. Ultimately, we want you to see a greater vision of God. That you would have this new set of, of lenses that would be over your eyeballs. That everywhere you look in your life and in God's world, you would see God as bigger and more powerful and more mighty and more merciful and more long-suffering than you ever imagined. So that's the modest goals. And this is the orientation day, so we're, we're, we're going to go in a bunch of different directions. But to appreciate the book of Exodus a little bit more and to understand it a little bit better, we need to get oriented with a few things. So we're going to do that, and then we'll uh, just kind of hit some of the highlights of Exodus this morning. So the first thing we need to know is how does the book of Exodus relate to the book of Genesis? The book of Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Exodus is the sequel. It's the second book of the Bible. How do the two connect? Well, Exodus, as I said, is the sequel. In the book of Genesis, we learn that, that God always existed and he created heaven and earth. He created all that we see and that we don't see. He created Adam and Eve and he created them to have a relationship with him. We learn quickly in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 that Adam and Eve sin against God that they were in a covenant with. They break the covenant and they have consequences for their sin. We learn in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 that verse 15 that there's a first glimpse of hope and redemption for God's people. We learn that Adam and Eve, as they have children, as the world gets populated, all of the people inherit the sinful nature of their mom and dad. We, we see in Genesis the, the flood account with Noah and the ark. We see both God's justice on display and we see God's mercy. We see God's justice in that it says that he looked at humanity, he regretted making them because of how sinful they were. They were evil all the time, he says. You can look it up in the book of Genesis. Then he brings a flood, a mass judgment on rebellious people. But we see his mercy too. He, he chooses Noah and his family and he preserves a line for the Savior to eventually come. And then we learn in chapter 12 in the book of Genesis that God reveals himself to a man named Abram, who eventually we come to know as Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him and a promise with him. And he promises that his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky or the, the, the grains of sand on the seashore. In other words, God is going to gather a huge group of people for himself that will be his family that will display his glory. And so from when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, out of God's presence, God begins to pursue and go after sinful men and women to reveal himself and to bring them into his family. So the book of Genesis is really important to the Exodus story. So if you have some free time this week, 
read the book of Genesis and read the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. So, it's important to know it's the sequel. It's part two. Well, who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses wrote the book of Exodus and he wrote the other four books of the Pentateuch as well. He's considered to be the primary author of the first five books of the Bible. When was the book of Exodus written? It was written, the earliest dating by scholars would be the 15th century B.C. Um, Like any Old Testament book, there's a lot of debate about that, but I think a good case can be made for the 15th century. All we need to know, it is a really old book inspired by God that is intended to teach us many things about him. Um... One other really important thing to know and to understand before you dive into Exodus, or I would say the Old Testament as a whole, or really even the New Testament, is understanding the idea of covenants. Because in the book of Genesis, God makes several covenants. And in the book of Exodus, God makes a covenant. And in um, in uh, 1 Samuel 7, or 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And so the theme of covenant is really important. So what is a covenant? I'm going to read um, a definition from the Dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch. You probably read it this week when you were reading your copy of the Dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch. Uh, The word covenant means a a solemn commitment guaranteeing guaranteeing promise or obligation undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. In other words, it's a solemn commitment. It's, a, it's deeper than a promise that in, in the case that we're going to be looking at is God makes this promise. It can be either one way or, or two ways. And we're going to see in the Bible there are one-way covenants, like God promised to never flood the earth again, and he used the rainbow as a sign. That's an unconditional promise that God's going to hold to no matter what we do. We're going to see in the, the, the covenant on Mount Sinai, there are things that God promises, and then there are things that God expects, and then uh, God's people are to respond. But the idea of covenant is just woven throughout the entire Bible. And if you were here last week, you heard during communion, the, the talk of covenant. I want to I help us make some connections from old to new here, and I'm going to read a passage from the book of Luke. And we're just getting started with Exodus, but you might know enough to know that there was this Exodus from Egypt, there was a Passover where they put blood over the doorposts, and, and the angel of the Lord skipped over the, the houses that had the blood on. Well, Luke is going to make some connections for us. This is in the New Testament. And when the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at a table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover is the celebration of the Exodus event in the book of Exodus. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he gave thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke this and said, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, this is the cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so what Jesus did, it's significant they're celebrating this on the Passover. What he's actually saying is, I'm the perfect Passover lamb. I am the ultimate one who will suffer, bleed, and die. And will fulfill the law and will open the way for you to have a free relationship with the living God. And see, he connects the two. And what you're going to see as we go through the book of Exodus, that God... Um, has all these things woven through. My, my prayer is sometimes I think when we read the Old Testament, we're looking at it, and then we read a verse in the New Testament, we're like, man, I don't see how the two are related at all. One of our hopes, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a lot of continuity, a lot of connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that's a lot of upfront information. Probably picked a bad morning to go through all the details when we're an hour um, short of sleep. But with that in mind, three themes we're going to see in the book of Exodus this morning are these. God graciously redeems his people. God graciously makes a covenant with his people. And God graciously displays his presence among his people. So we're going to kind of group it in three categories. First one, God graciously redeems his people. I'm going to read some names to you. I know from personal experience that we can have a tendency to tune out when we, we have names. Think about it this way. You have a name. You have a name. You probably have a first name, a middle name, and a last name. And with that name comes a story. And with that name comes a family. And what, with that name comes a, a story of God working in your family and in your life. So when we read names in the Bible, they are real people that have real stories that are intentionally placed there for us to learn things about God and to learn details of their lives. So we're going to meet some people, and these people will become eventually the, the 12 tribes of Israel with a, a few tweaks. Um, but be okay with names. Names have these rich stories in the Bible. Exodus 1, 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came out of Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. So Genesis ends with God's people being in Egypt. And they ended up in Egypt because the names that I'm about to read are the brothers of Joseph who told their father that your, your son has died and here's his clothing, here's his coat of many colors covered in blood. They actually covered in animal's blood and said he got killed. Um, so these are the guys. Some are guiltier than others, but they were all culpable for Joseph being in Egypt. And for Jacob, Joseph's father, not knowing what happened to his son, thinking he died many years before. All the while, you can read in Genesis that God used Joseph's brother's sin, that we're, we're going to see their names here in a moment, 
to place Joseph in Egypt. He eventually rose in rank in Egypt. God was with him. He becomes number two in Egypt. And a huge famine comes across the land that not only affects Egypt, but way further than Egypt. And because of the, the sins of Joseph's brothers, Joseph ends up there. God uses Joseph to provide food for Egypt and beyond. And eventually, Joseph's brothers and his dad come to reside in Egypt. So God uses the evil intent of their brothers for good, and we know that because that's what Joseph tells his brothers. So we're going to meet the brothers, and the, the brothers is a big family. These are the names of the sons of Israel, also named Jacob, who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt because he had gone there before. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So, God's chosen people, right now it's about 70 when Joseph dies. They're, they're in Egypt. And if you're reading the Bible and you just got up in the morning, you want to read the Bible, you were here last week and thought, I'm going to try to read the Bible like they talked about last week. Well, you could miss what happens. In verse 7 and 8, a few hundred years elapses. So you, we're just reading it. You go from 7 to 8 and you, you kind of miss that hundreds of years have elapsed. But when it says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They're, they're eventually in the hundreds of thousands, if not higher. And so over hundreds of years elapses, but they're still in Egypt. And what has happened is over time, their favor leaves. So when they first get there, they're with Joseph. And Joseph's good with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's like, this is my guy, and these are his people, so we're good. Well, then verse 8 happens. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He didn't know him. Had no favor towards him. All this new guy saw is, wow, there are Jewish people everywhere. This is a large number, and he felt threatened by it. Verse 9, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. So he was fearful, and in his fear, he, he decides the, the best thing to do is to oppress and enslave, and so here we have in Exodus, God's chosen people are placed into slavery and oppression for really hundreds of years. The existence of the United States of America, even a little bit longer than that time period, there they are in Egypt. And they may have thought, well, where'd the Lord go? What about us? Didn't he, didn't he remember us? Isn't he powerful? Isn't he mighty? Isn't the one spoke the, the galaxies into existence? And here we are day after day, year after year, suffering. 
Philip Ryken and Kent Hughes wrote a, a book on the book of Exodus, and they say the following about the book of Exodus. As we study the biblical history and the book of Exodus, we discover that the real hero of the story is God. God is the one who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people in bondage and takes pity on their suffering, raising up deliverer to save them. God is the one who visits plagues on Egypt, who divides the sea, who drowns Pharaoh's army. God is the one who provides bread from heaven and water from the rock. God is the one who gives the law covenant on the mount on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and fills the tabernacle with his glory. From beginning to end, Exodus is a God-centered book. It's all about God and his mercy and his power. And so we have a people. They're, they're in Egypt. They feel forgotten. And there they wait. Exodus chapter 2 says this, Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant, his binding promise with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. I want you to imagine how horrific their situation was, how forgotten they probably had felt and they groan and they cry and their cry and their groan reaches heaven and the Lord hears their cry if you're them and they they remember the the covenant of Abraham they, they were probably thinking at times maybe not verbalizing it but thinking it wow this seems like exactly the opposite of what, of what God promised to our father Abraham. This seems like complete opposite. Let me read the promise, part of the, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Remember, by the time the heir, the son was born... Abraham's 90, his wife is 100. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said, So shall your offspring be. You're going to have this massive family. And in this massive family, you're going to have a land. You're going to have a promised land. And you're going to be a people. And you're going to be a great nation. Hundreds of years elapse. They got bigger. They're definitely not a great nation. And they don't have their own land. And so they could have been tempted to doubt God's rescue, doubt God's promise. But then, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, the Exodus event happens. God raises up a mediator, a, a, a deliverer, a go-between the people and the Lord, a, a type of Jesus from the Old Testament named Moses. And Moses eventually leads God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And as Jason read this morning, the Egyptian army gets swallowed up in the Red Sea and they head towards Mount Sinai and then eventually to the promised land. And see, God had not forgotten them. 
just like God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten your groans and your cries and your prayers and your pleading and your, your recalling of his promises year after year. He hears, and in a moment in time, he acts. Um, I just finished a, an Old Testament class for my seminary class, and my professor, uh, Dr. Lance Higginbotham, sounds like a great professor name, um, said this, the Exodus event in the Old Testament is the equivalent of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. The Exodus was the central redemptive event that defined God's love for his people. It's the equivalent of the crucifixion, crucifixion and resurrection. So think about it from this point of view. This is not original to me. Um, many have, I think, taught it this way. But I want you to imagine if you were a Jewish person, you lived in Egypt, you were enslaved by Pharaoh, you were making bricks, you were carrying bricks, you were getting beaten, you're hot, you're dirty, you're uncomfortable, you're tired, your body aches, and you just think that's going to be my life and eventually I'm going to die. And then Moses shows up, and then God calls you out of slavery. So how would you talk about it? Here's what you would say. We were in slavery under a cruel and tyrant ruler. That's what a Jewish person would say in, those, in that time period. What would a Christian say? A Christian would say, we were in slavery under a cruel and tyrant ruler. I was enslaved to my sin. Satan was my prince. He was my master. That's what Ephesians says. We were hopeless and helpless to save ourselves. E the Egyptian army was massive. They had chariots. They had strong warriors. We, we, didn't, we felt like it was impossible. We, we didn't see a way out. We're pinned against the Red Sea, and there's no hope. We're either going to get Destroyed by Pharaoh's army, or we're going to drown in the Red Sea. And then the way opens up. Well, what's your story if you're a Christian? I was hopeless. I was helpless. I could not save myself. And God broke through. God sent a mediator to the Israelites. His name was Moses. And we're going to learn a lot about Moses in the next few weeks. He raises him up. And many times, Moses, throughout the book of Exodus, stands between the Lord and the people. And he pleads on behalf of the people. Well, as Christians, our entire hope is based on a mediator that is greater than Moses. A perfect Moses. One who had never sinned in any way. Jesus himself. Then, if you were the Egyptians, or the Israelites being saved out of Egypt, you got rescued Eventually, you're wandering around in the wilderness, you get to Mount Sinai, and you hear God's expectations for his covenant people. He calls you to live a different way. Well, it's the same for Christians. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and then he calls us to live a different way. We're to be different. We're to be changed from the inside out. God's Holy Spirit enables us. Well, they didn't have all the good stuff that we have but they had the expectation that to be rescued is to live differently. And then the culminating event in the book of Exodus is the final chapter of Exodus where God's 
His presence and spirit is poured out in this beautiful display. So if you were a Jewish person, you went from slavery to rescue, to having a mediator going between you and the Lord, to being called to live differently, to being ones who were able to be in the presence of the Lord, if you followed the right parameters. Well, it's the same for us, except we have absolute access to the Lord, and we have the Holy Spirit in us. We're going to see that in a moment. So you can see how the Exodus event really is the gospel of the Old Testament, the rescue of the Old Testament. So, like I said, we're in an airplane. We're 30,000 feet in the air. If we're watching this on your TV, we're going to fast forward to Texas chapter 19. So they've been rescued. Now we're, we're going to Mount Sinai. And it, at Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai, we're going to learn that God graciously makes a covenant with his people. Exodus 19 says this. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. See, God is the hero of the story. He's the rescuer. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God is calling his people, and he's laying out the kind of the, the terms of the covenant. I rescued, and now you obey. You, you live differently. But it's really important to understand the order. God's rescue must proceed, precede our obedience. God's rescue goes before the call of obedience. You got to have the proper order. If you get it, if you get it confused, we get off course really quickly. Rescue happens first, response in obedience happens second. So we all know the 10 commandments and you, maybe a lot of you know that it's in Exodus chapter 20. But when you think of the 10 commandments, I think most people skip verse 1 and 2 of Exodus 20 when you think of them. Exodus 21 and 2 are, are crucial. They're vital to understanding the order. Rescue first, obedience second. So this is right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land. I rescued you out of the house of slavery. Now he's going to give some expectations here in a moment. Here's what followers of God should look like. Here's what we should be like in an increasing way. And we're going to see in Exodus, they didn't often get it right. They were messy, just like we're messy. But rescue goes first, obedience goes second. That's true in the book of Genesis. That's true in the book of Exodus. That's true throughout the Bible. And it's true in the New Testament. Let me read a New Testament passage. 
Romans 5, but God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in our mess, while we were enslaved to our sinful passions and desires, while we were without hope, Christ died for us. Paid in full, rescued, called out. God's Spirit goes in us and then we're called to be different and to obey. So when we, we trust in the Lord, we are rescued from the enslavement of sin and then we're called to a new life. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul will connect the Old Testament Passover to living the new life in Jesus. There are, my, my prayer is you're going to start to see all these dots connect from the old to the new. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, re- as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrifice. Couldn't get more clear that he's connecting Jesus to the Passover lamb. He's saying, let's, let's get rid of the old leaven. Let's get rid of our sinful past and its actions. And let's live in keeping with this new covenant that we're a part of. See, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, salvation is never presented as, as we might hear it in our, our time period of like fire insurance. That you just believe in Jesus, no matter what you do, and uh, you won't go to hell. If you believe in Jesus with all your heart, you won't go to hell. He really will pay for every one of your sins. But with that salvation comes the call to a relationship. And in that relationship, we begin to change from the inside out. They're never separate in the Old Testament or the New Testament. See, God rescues God's rescue to obedience, it's, it, it's rescue first, obedience second. I think all of us have a tendency to flip the order. Even when we know it. Even when we say, no, are you saved by your works or are you saved by what Jesus has done? We know the right answer is we're saved by what Jesus has done. But it's like a gravitational pull. I still think i got to be good enough for God to love me. No, God loves you. Because Jesus rescued you. Because Jesus paid for all of your sins. Now we're to obey. God's rescue is a call to obedience. Obedience is not the way to rescue. Obedience is not the way we earn favor with God. It's not the way we earn our position with God. Jesus busts the way wide open. And then we respond. What I want you to do, Zach, I'm going to skip over the Ten Commandments, but I want you, if you can, check out the Ten Commandments this week. And remember that in the New Testament, Jesus actually probes them deeper than they are. For example, when um, the commandment says, you shall not murder. Jesus says if anyone gets angry at his brother, it's the same sin as murder. Um, Jesus also says if anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he commits the sin of adultery in his heart. So what I want you to do is, through Jesus' lens there, read through the Ten Commandments. And what you'll clearly see, if you're honest with yourself before the Lord, I I could never, I never would perfectly do this. Even if you could perfectly do it from today's date 
onward, you already failed the test. If the, if the only acceptable grade is 100%, which it is, then we've already failed. So the purpose of the law isn't so that we think, here's the bar, here's how I earn God's favor. No, the purpose of the law is, is many. One, it's to drive us to Jesus. Two, it's to remind us that God's people were called to live differently. Let me just read a couple of verses from the New Testament. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, that's Exodus 20, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The perfect standard given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. See, Jesus is the only one when he's staring at the Ten Commandments and all their implications, he's perfect. He passes the test. Tempted in every way, but passes in full. So we want to put our hope in him. John 1.45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the one that the Old Testament points to. Jesus alone. As we go through the book of Exodus, what our prayer is is that Jesus and his work on the cross will become sweeter and more powerful and more amazing. Paul said in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if it was actually possible to obey the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that follow in Exodus and Leviticus, then the Messiah came for no reason. Jesus died for nothing. But the point is, nobody can keep the standard perfectly. Jesus alone is our hope for salvation. So we are saved not by obeying the law, but by trusting the one who perfectly obeyed the law. Rescue always goes first. And then we are called to obey. And so, as you're thinking about this subject, if there's a gap between your profession of trusting in Jesus and how you live, you need to, you need to own that. You need to, to do business with the Lord and ask for forgiveness and ask Him to close the gap. And He will. Final point. We're back in the airplane. We're going to shoot to the end here in a moment. And we're going to see God graciously displays his presence among his people. God graciously displays his presence among his people. To properly understand this, though, you got to remember what happened in the garden. It was massive when Adam and Eve sinned. Listen to Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is a sad day. Adam and Eve were in the presence of the Lord prior to sinning. They enjoyed the Lord. The Lord enjoyed them. They had perfect fellowship with one another. And then they sin. And when we sin, we hide. And they were... They were hiding from the very 
presence of their maker and creator who, who made them for relationship with him. But their sin had severed that relationship. Genesis 3.22 says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to, to the tree of life. They are kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They're kicked out of the presence of the Lord. And in, from Genesis 3.15 on, we, we get glimpses of how God is going to pursue a people so they, they can experience His presence, so they can have a right relationship with Him. And so God is in the redeeming business, and he, he enters our mess, and he begins to make it new. Revelation, the book of Revelation, ends with the people of God in his perfect presence. So the, since the fall of man, God has pursued a way to dwell among a redeemed people. So we don't want to take lightly the idea of being in God's presence. It's an incredible gift, and it should be an amazing reality that sinful men and women can be in the presence of a living God. And so chapter 40 of Exodus ends this way. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, and the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The presence of the Lord was revealed in a powerful way. Now, as Christians in the New Testament era, you have, you have full and complete access we don't have to follow all the particulars of Exodus and Leviticus. We can come right to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3 says this, and this will become, should become more shockingly amazing as we go through the book of Exodus. This is 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So as we read the book of Exodus, we're going we're gonna to see how all these details of the tabernacle and, and all the different things that people had to go through to be in the presence of the Lord. And because of Jesus, now the way is opened wide. And if you've trusted in him, God's Spirit is in you. You house the presence of God because of what Jesus has done for you. If the band could come up, we're going to sing one final song. And as we do, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have God's Spirit in us and we can approach the throne of grace with great boldness as we sing to Him. Let's stand and pray. Turn our hearts to the Lord. Jesus, we thank You that You opened the way. Lord, I pray the reality that we house the presence of the Holy Spirit would be shocking and amazing. The reality that You are in us and with us. You will never leave us. And that we have complete and total access to You at all times. And that Your blood covers us once for all. Pray that would give us all joy as we uh, face another week. Lord, fill us with joy as we respond to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.